The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Um, we run this seminar interlinked with the clinical, clinical sites. Um, next month, for example, will be Dr. Maria Stewart from UCD on stammering through literature and other forms of arts and humanities expression. Uh, and this month, we're delighted to have Dr. Catherine Furman from UCC, a lecturer in philosophy, who's been running their Health and Society Masters, about which we'll hear more, with a PhD from the London School of Economics. Um, really excited to have uh, Catherine here because she's been doing something that actually has been missing on the um, on the scene in Ireland, which is an integrated uh, masters between uh, university philosophy department and the university department of public health. Um, I'm mindful that there is a masters in uh, ethics and law in RCSI. But this represents a, a very different approach in, within a, a university setting between these full-fledged departments. It's something that's badly needed and certainly in terms of values in medicine hugely important in, ter in terms of how decisions are made and which are the, um, which are the overt and which are the covert. So uh, hugely important. Uh, Catherine is now moving on to the University of Liverpool but we hope that we will continue to have fruitful links now that we've uh, uh, got to meet each other and uh, really looking forward to your talk. Thanks very much. Thank you so much and thank you for the very warm introduction. I'm just starting my timer, otherwise I have a horrible tendency to ramble. Thank you so much for coming out, especially on such a grey and rainy December lunchtime. So as Des mentioned, I'm a lecturer in philosophy um, at University College Cork, but as we were chatting before, it might be useful to get a little bit of a background about where I come from and the kind of work that I do and how what I'm going to talk to about today fits into that context. So before doing my PhD in philosophy, um, I worked in public health in South Africa, I worked in health policy, and I worked really closely with doctors and medics. And I kind of got to the end of that time and thought, well, we really just don't think hard enough about how we make health policy decisions. And so I went back to the London School of Economics where I'd done a master's degree in philosophy and public policy and I did a PhD on a South African health case. Um, with the full intention that I would eventually go back into public health practice, and that never, that never happened. I became an academic instead. Um, I then did a postdoc um, at the University of Durham in the Centre for Humanities Engaging Science and Society, or known as CHESS. Um, and that's really a group of philosophers that work very closely with scientists and with social scientists to figure out how we can use some of the insights of philosophy to do that work more efficiently, better, more thoughtfully, Whatever. I mean, I'm not, I don't think that philosophy has all of the answers and that we should like sweep in and fix things for other disciplines, but I think we can have really useful interactions as a result of that. Um, and then after that, I moved into Cork, uh, where I've been running this interdisciplinary master's in philosophy and health. So this is the MA in Health and Society. Um, that little picture there is some of our students from last year. And it's a really interdisciplinary program, like properly interdisciplinary. Um, it's housed, it lives in the Department of Philosophy, but it's very much co-taught with the School of Public Health. And students take compulsory core modules in philosophy and public health and sociology of health, 
um, and they can do their dissertations in either the philosophy department or the Department of Public Health. And so they really have a lot of options. Um, and I would say roughly the program ends up being half students who've come through undergraduate degrees, mostly in the arts, who kind of don't know what they're doing with their lives, um, and are kind of figuring out what to do next. But the other half of the program is always overwhelmingly mid-career professionals in medicine, social policy, social work, and nursing. And these are people who kind of just want to take like a pause, they want to take a year out of their careers, um, and really get some hard thinking about what they're doing in. And we do a lot of work that isn't really about ethics. So the kind of medical ethics market or the bioethics market is really swamped. Like there are lots of people who think about how to do medical ethics well, and that's obviously a very good and important thing to do and to do well. Like I think the long history of medicine has shown us that if we don't have people thinking about the ethics, things go very badly wrong. But really reading something from a slightly different side, so because of my public health background um, and my interest really in scientific method, we spend a lot of time thinking about evidence. Like, how do you know what the good evidence is? How useful are randomized control trials to you? When you have other really different kinds of evidence, how do you put those things together? What does it mean to be objective? What role do values play in all of the story? And so it's really a very different picture from the bioethics picture that is where we typically see philosophy getting involved in medicine. So typically when we see philosophy getting involved in medicine, it's bioethics, how do we do things ethically? Where now I think it's become more comprehensive, like how do we do this whole thing differently in a thoughtful, more reflective kind of fashion. And so that's what we do in the MA in Health and Society. We, we do this thinking deeply about how do we implement policy, how do we do our medical practice in a, in a thoughtful way. And students have a lot of freedom to choose how they put together this degree. Um, so they have three core compulsory modules that I've mentioned before. They have to do a dissertation, they have to do philosophy, they have to do public health, they have to do sociology. But then they have lots of other subjects that they can choose from really across the university. So we have offerings in the law department, in psychology, in the, in the social sciences, and in sociology, other modules in public health, other modules in philosophy. For instance, one of the modules in philosophy that students take with alarming regularity, they really enjoy it, is a master's level program in death and dying, like how to think about death in a thoughtful, reflective, critical way. And depending on what students' backgrounds look like, what they want to do next, um, with help of the director, which has been me up until this point, they can really tailor-make their, their program to suit what their interests are. So, for instance, last year, we had an extremely clever social worker from Dublin who was a specialist in disability. And so we were able to kind of pick and choose all of the disability modules that are on offer from across the university, and he was really able to make himself a tailor-made, reflective, disability-orientated master's program. Um, which he was able to do because that was the kind of background and the sort of interests he had. So in the Q&A time, I'm very happy to talk more about the MA in Health and Society because this is very clearly my baby and I want more people to get the opportunity to do this. And so it's one year full-time, two years part-time. We've had plenty of doctors over the years. This is now going to our third year, so not that many years, but some years, um, who've been able to also take on some, some work in practice while they've been doing their master's degrees because doctors are very good at managing harsh workloads. Alright, but I'm going to talk to you about something a little bit different today. So, on the package I said I'd be talking to you about values in medicine, I will be talking about values, but I want to kind of take a bit of a step back. So this is a typical philosophy move. Let's take a step back and look at like, what's at stake here? Why do we care about thinking about values, other than it being an interesting, reflective exercise? And I think part of the reason we care about values and getting this right is because we're actually very worried about trust. We're very worried about patients trusting medical professionals, and more generally, we worried about ordinary members of the public trusting various institutional frameworks in which they find themselves. 
And so I think it's very popular now to hear people talking about there being a general crisis of trust. People don't trust scientists, they don't trust their bank, they don't trust their GP. And I've got kind of in brackets there, so it's kind of a like, breakdown of trust, but in very kind of specific pockets. So there are other ways in which people trust science, trust various kinds of professionals, absolutely. Like you use your microwave without being really concerned about science in a deep way, you happily cross over bridges every day, like fully trusting the engineers and engineering science that have put it up there. So there are kind of moments of distrust in the sciences, in the professions. But, you know, I would resist this idea that there's this big, broad-scale crisis. But we're worried about trust. And I think that medical professionals are especially worried about trust. I think there's been a big rise in people Google diagnosing themselves um, and coming to their doctor with their own diagnosis um, or resisting um, doctors when they make various kinds of recommendations. Um, and wanting to really kind of what I call go it alone epistemically. They want to kind of do their own thing rather than defer to their doctors. And of course we don't think that, you know, people should defer to their doctors, absolutely. But it would be good if there was a kind of proper trusting relationship there so that people wouldn't have to feel like they need to fall back on their own expertise to kind of get through the medical system. And so I think what we're going to talk about a little bit today in the, the, the period of time we have is to think carefully about trust and what kinds of things we should be like having in the back of our minds when we think about trust. One of the things we should be thinking about is values, and I'll be talking about values, um, but I think we should also be thinking about other things. All right, so the first question you might have is, well, what is trust? Like, how do we even like get off the ground thinking about this? And so Philip Pettit, who's actually an Irish philosopher, who's now based at the University of Princeton, suggests that there are at least two bits that make up trust. And he thinks that, we, he thinks that there are two things that people need to trust, trust and competence, and trust and goodwill. And the way that he explains this is through using the toy example of getting on a bus. So when you get on a bus, you trust both that the bus driver is competent at bus driving, but also that that bus driver has good intentions towards you. They're not going to like deliver you into the hands of kidnappers. And whenever I kind of forget how compelling Philip Pettit's um, description of trust is, I remind myself about what it's like to get on the really dodgy late night night bus. You get on the really dodgy late night night bus, man, you need to trust the bus driver in that circumstance. And in that situation, you really are trusting in the competence of the bus driver. You're like, man, are we going to get there? <laughs> um, but you're also trusting in their goodwill because you're in such a vulnerable situation. And so this trust and goodwill thing is really important because you really need to believe that someone is acting with good intentions, goodwill towards you, especially in moments of vulnerability. And moments of vulnerability is where trust kicks in. I don't need to trust you if I'm not vulnerable. I can do my own thing. But if I find myself in a vulnerable situation, that's when I need to really start thinking about trust and like what goes into that. And so, you know, one of the examples that people love talking about in these kinds of cases is thinking about vaccinating your children, right? You give this like squishy little baby that you love a lot over to someone else and let them put a needle in it, right? And you, you're really trusting in the competence, but also in the goodwill, like that they're going to treat your like squishy baby well in that moment of vulnerability. You're making yourself extremely vulnerable in that situation. And I think by placing too much emphasis just on informed consent, so with the, the place where philosophy gets involved is often at the informed consent level, all you're doing is looking at this idea of competence, like is this a good doctor who's going to do good like doctoring on me, where we neglect this concern about goodwill. All right, so getting the picture a little bit bigger. Trust is about competence, trust is about goodwill. What else should we be thinking about when we're thinking about trust? So I think we need to also be thinking about two additional things when we're thinking about trust. We need to be thinking about values, which is what the, the name of the talk today was supposed to be about, and I'll talk to you a little bit about values. And you also need to think about emotions and the emotional aspects that go into trusting or distrusting in the medical profession. I'm just coming down from a cold, so I need to glug water as I go just to like, keep my voice going. 
All right, so let's start by talking about values. All right, so we need to take a little bit of a detour um, from thinking about medicine directly and think about science for a little bit. So I think I've mentioned I'm mostly a philosopher of science. I did my PhD in the Department of Philosophy, Logic, and Scientific Method. Um, so we're going to take a little bit of a detour into philosophy of science, but an easy detour. This is not going to be scary. Um, so mainstream philosophy of science now is thoroughly convinced that the sciences are heavily value-laden. If you look at the sciences, there's just values all the way down. So what I've got on this slide is kind of four key moments in which values play a role in the scientific method. Um, but most people would think that these are just like the high point. There are lots of other value-based decisions going on along the way. So we're not talking about medical practice directly now, we're talking about science, but science is important to medical practitioners. You use science all the time in your work. So even starting at the question of product, project choice, like you're a scientist, like some of you have probably done some science in your working lives. You're a scientist, you need to decide what projects to pursue. The moment of deciding what project you pursue is a thoroughly value-laden moment of choice. What do you think is a value pro valuable project? What do you think is interesting towards you, to you? So even just deciding what's interesting is really a value-laden moment. But also not just you as one individual researcher, one individual scientist making this decision, but also kind of thinking about the way funders make these sorts of decisions. So funders will need to have to make decisions about like competing projects and which ones they're going to fund. And very often that's going to be a value-laden decision. So I think my favorite example always to indicate what this looks like is apparently, I've been told this, I can't find the reference, there was a moment in the history of science where both the Large Hadron Collider um, and the Human Genome Project were competing for the same enormous pot of funding. So two majorly important scientific projects that were vying for the same money. And the, the funding committee chose the Human Genome Project. And the reason that they gave for choosing the Human Genome Project wasn't that they thought that the Large Hadron Collider was not a deserving or worthy project. They did it because they thought having information about the human genome that we could later use for medical advance was just more valuable, right? So project choice, heavily value-laden. Then once you have decided what it is you're going to research, you also need to choose a method. And so I know that in the medical sciences, this is very often just given to you, right? You have to do a randomized control trial. But the, the kind of set of decisions that's gone into the importance of the randomized control trial has been a bunch of value decisions as well. It's about thinking that statistical information over a population level is maybe more important than ethnographic information or first-person testimony about various kinds of things. And so I think it'll be interesting to hear the discussion over the discussion period what you think are the important methods that you would like to see operating in your practice. But then even once you have the data in front of you, it's not as though the answer of what the data is showing you like falls out of the data. It's not as though it's obvious what the answer is, like what this is showing you. Very often there are going to be value choices involved in deciding what the data is telling you. And in the next slide I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story about that and how it can go badly wrong sometimes. And then finally the question about how do you communicate your findings. Like how, what do you decide is more or less important to tell people? And so this is again like one of the places where in medicine I think people have thought quite hard about this, like thinking about informed consent. Like you can't give people all of the information, that's just physically impossible. So what was the important information that you feel that people need? How do you communicate things about like risk of various things, like cancer risk? Or how do you explain something like a type 1 or a type 2 error? We were talking about this with the cervical cancer scandal just over lunch before I came here. That's going to be a value-based decision about how, like, what you communicate and how you communicate it. What do you pick out of like, all of the potentially relevant medical data you could give a patient that's going to be important? And so both in kind of like high science, you know, the guys wearing the lab coats doing the bench science, all the way through to kind of frontline medical practice, we see that there's thoroughly value-laden decisions going on. And we've been aware of the value-ladenness of the sciences in philosophy of science since at least the 1950s. This is not news. 
But for a long time, we were optimistic that all of those values could be what we call the scientific or the epistemic values. So things like, how clear is this? What, what is the clarity value of this? Um, how much explanatory value do we get from something? Like, how explanatory is this theory? So, for instance, perhaps you have two different types of theories explaining a set of data. Something like explanatory capacity would be a value that you take in there. And so it was a really narrow set of values that we thought were going on for a long time, or at least we hoped were going on. We're like, okay, they're values. All of this stuff is value-laden. Project choice, method choice, how to interpret the data, how to communicate it. You know, but we can, we can get by. We can get by with these scientific um, and epistemic values. But I think that that moment has passed. We're kind of now very aware that there's social and political values happening as well, and it doesn't seem as though we're going to be able to get away from them. That, in fact, there are lots of social and political values going on here. All right, so what do these values look like in practice, these social and political values? What do they look like? Because it's kind of a hard sell to people who are kind of like hard-nosed positivists. I suspect there are none of you in the room today that their social and political values right at the heart of the sciences. So I have a photograph here from a 1980s AIDS protest. Um, and it's supposed to get us to reflect a little bit on what happened in the very early days of AIDS science. So in the very early 1980s, Young, otherwise healthy men in places like San Francisco and New York just seem to start dying. Um, and very quickly, we, I'm pretending like I'm a member of the scientific community, just like bear with me. Like we were like aware very early on that these cases were related, they had something to do with each other, um, and we grouped all of these AIDS and all of these um, diseases under the title of AIDS. We knew that these people had this thing called AIDS. There was commonality between the cases, we didn't know what the commonality was. And so in the very early 1980s, the hot scientific project to be pursuing, if you're a bench scientist, was trying to figure out what was going on. What was, what was the etiology of AIDS? What was the cause of AIDS? And initially, there were so many theories. There were basically as many theories as there were scientists, some of which were extremely wild. Um, none of you would kind of even think as being like prospects of being plausible. But then very quickly, the scientific community coalesced around two major theories about what they thought it could potentially be. One was that AIDS might be microbial. There might be a microbe, could be a bacterium, could be a virus, but we hadn't found it. Like we sort of looked a little bit, but it wasn't obvious that that was the case. And initially that was seen as the less attractive theory. The other alternative theory was what's become known as the immune overload theory, or the lifestyle theory of AIDS. Essentially they were saying that AIDS is a, another lifestyle-related disease, like, like heart disease, like various kinds of heart disease, like sugar diabetes, like hypertension. It's a lifestyle-related disease, and it has to do with the lifestyle that's associated with the so-called urban American gay scene. These guys just partied too hard. Uh, they took too many drugs, they partied too hard, they had too many sexual partners, too many STDs, and the result of that was immune system collapse. And then immune system collapse came with all of the opportunistic infectious diseases that we think of as being the AIDS-defining diseases. And initially, in the very early 1980s, that was seen as the substantially more likely causal theory of what was happening with AIDS. And a lot of energy and attention was put into figuring out exactly what the relevant lifestyle factors were that were leading to this. And then, of course, we very quickly discovered HIV, the virus, and that was the end of that kind of moment of scientific debate. Like, once we found the virus, the debate was over. But initially, it just struck researchers as being substantially more plausible that it was lifestyle. If you're interested in the story, there's a fabulous book written by Stephen Epstein, who's a sociologist of science, called Impure Science, in which he argues that this kind of the attractiveness of the immune overload theory in the early 1980s was entirely the result of latent homophobia within the scientific community. And he particularly takes Harvard Medical School to task on this. He's kind of like those white bread Harvard American, um, Harvard medical researchers just like couldn't get over how exotic they found the lifestyle of the men who were disproportionately affected. 
So I could have chosen any one of a hundred examples of the way that values really gets in deep in the scientific process, social and political values, some of which are good, some of which are bad. Uh, feminist philosophers of science have all of these great examples about like how scientific practice substantially changed um, when women were allowed on teams. The reason I've chosen this one is not just because I do a lot of my academic research on early aid science, um, so I know I'm very comfortable with this example, but also because I think it gives us a cautionary tale about how not only are social and political values often like right there, like deep in the scientific process, choosing between what theories seem more or less plausible, um, but sometimes it can go badly wrong. Sometimes there can be bad values doing this work, and sometimes there can be bad values that distract us from the truth, capital T truth. All right, so there are values involved here. So now we need, to talk, we need to go back to thinking about distrust. We took a little bit of a detour into values. Thinking about distrust. So Philip Kitcher, who's the handsome devil in that photo, I could be horrified if you could hear me saying that. Philip Kitcher, a professor of philosophy at Columbia, um, has written substantially on the role of science in democratic societies. How do, we, how do we manage the relationship between scientists, and I take medical practitioners to be part of the scientific community, how do we manage that relationship? And Philip has written extensively about when that relationship goes bad and how we can make it be better. And he argues that one of the ways that the relationship between ordinary members of the public and science, again, big science, including medical practitioners, can sometimes go wrong, is when values are what he calls opaque. So when it isn't clear to the public what the values are that have been informing scientific practice. Or again, go down a level. What the values are that inform a medical practitioner when they're making various recommendations to you or giving you certain amounts of information, or seeing certain things in the data when making a diagnosis. So we know that these value judgments are there, and that's all fine and well if there's a trusting relationship between the member of the public and the like either the scientific community or the individual scientists that they're coming into contact with. But when there's reason to be suspicious, or when people just are suspicious, rightly or wrongly, that's when that relationship starts to go bad, when there are opaque value judgments afoot. And so the other person who I've got photographed up here is another philosopher of medicine. Is that a hand for me? No, it's, it's they're turning off the mic who was making the extra Oh yeah, noise. I can hear the extra noise and sometimes I was finding it distracting. So all of, all right. all of my ums and ahs are really because of the mic. <laughs> Not my own personal problem, no, I'm joking. Okay, so the other photograph that I've got up here is a philosopher um, who I work with quite a lot with, Mike Goldenberg. Mike Goldenberg's a philosopher of medicine in Toronto. And she's got an interesting book coming out next year on vaccine hesitancy. And the reason she's been writing about vaccine hesitancy is because she realized that she is like the textbook person who doesn't vaccinate their children. In actual fact, Maya did vaccinate her children. But she didn't think about vaccinating her children. It wasn't something that she kind of put her philosopher hat on, thought deeply about, waded through the evidence, you know, went through the pros and cons of vaccination. She just did it. She didn't even think about it. And then when she saw the data on who vaccine denialists are, like she was textbook. Like, she's an older mother, she's well-educated, she lives in an urban centre, she does loads of yoga. Um, like, and then she became really concerned about, well, what had, made, like, what had made her different? Like, why had she vaccinated her children? And her concern was that she was basically one yoga studio away from being a vaccine denialist. And one of the things that she argues in her forthcoming book is that vaccine denialism is often a story about clashes in value judgments. And as a result, because there are two different sets of values going on, Individual patients and medical practitioners can't even have a conversation with each other because they're just speaking past each other. And so the way that she describes this is that medics and population health people, epidemiologists, are interested in population distributions of disease. They're very worried about herd immunity, right? So that's their value judgment. They're concerned about this big level herd immunity thing. 
individual parents are not so worried about that. I mean, kind of, but in an indirect way. What they're worried about is the safety of their individual child. Like, that is their bad judgment. All they're concerned is, I keep on describing babies as being squishy bundles because I don't have a child of my own. Um, so apologies for the error. But they're worried about the squishy bundle in front of them, right? And so they keep on asking questions about the safety of their vaccine for their child, right? So that's the, value, the way that the value question gets framed. And instead of getting information about their child, they get population level information. So they get told about what happens at the population level. And so ultimately this is a value clash, right? So it's about concerns about a commitment to population level public health versus concern about my squishy bundle of a child. And because no one is recognizing the differences in values that are going into these different actors, no one can have a conversation with each other because the information just, the question and the information ends up like speaking past each other. And so she argues that's one of the things that's going on here. And so when you're thinking about how to build trusting relationships with patients or how to build trusting relationships between the public and the medical community, one of the things I think you need to think about carefully is values. Knowing that there are going to definitely be values all the way through, right? Like think about that picture I had before, right from what projects are chosen to pursue in the sciences all the way through to how do you communicate cancer risk to the patient in your practice and loads of other value judgments in between. The value judgments are going to be there. The question is, how explicit can you make those value judgments? How transparent can you make them? How transparent can you make the value judgments of the patient? And like, what, what concerns them and interests them so that you can have a productive like, relationship and discussion there? I know that the last speaker you had for the series was Brendan Kelly, who was talking to you about joint decision making. And so thinking about joint decision making is a useful way to kind of tap into these value differences. Okay, so this is the values bit. All right, but I think that values is not gonna get you everywhere. Values are useful, we need to think about values. And getting the value judgments right is going to be hard. We also need to think about emotions. And I'm going to tell you a little cautionary tale about emotions. All right, so a case that I've been working on a lot recently, this is the moment that I need to not wander over there. I've been told I have to be in front of the microphone, is the recent West African Ebola outbreak. I've been doing a lot of work on this case, which is why I'm going to tell you a little story about it. But I think it shows clearly what a, what a substantial role emotions play in distrust in medicine. So this is a map of Africa in which West Africa is important, I would be walking up there and be showing you the rest of the continent. Africa goes down like that. Okay, so I'm not talking about the current Ebola outbreak that's going on in DRC at the moment. This is the one that kind of happened between 2013 and 2016. West Africa, the so-called Ebola Triangle, that's Guinea, Sierra Leone, Liberia. Um, this was the biggest Ebola outbreak we'd ever seen, um, in which there were at least um, tens of thousands of deaths. Uh, we kind of don't know how many people died and how many people got Ebola because almost everyone who was infected and who did die never presented in formal medical structures. They got sick and they died at home um, or recovered sometimes, not very often, at home. Um, as a result, they don't kind of show up to us statistically as the World Health Organization, for instance. And so that's the World Health Organization numbers I have up on the slide, but they fully admit this is totally a guesstimate. What's important is that it was big, right? So the numbers don't really matter except there was a big outbreak. So there'd previously been outbreaks of Ebola before, mostly on the east coast of Africa and places in Uganda, and it had been sort of like 600 people at a time. And it was really self-limiting, so it would, happen in, it would happen in very geographically isolated places, amongst very few people, and because Ebola is so fast-moving and so deadly, people didn't really have enough time to get around and get infectious. So it's a really different disease from HIV, which we were talking about earlier, because HIV people remain healthy and active and doing stuff for a long time, so they can infect a lot of people. Ebola, it seemed as though we were never going to have a big outbreak like this, because people die too quickly to infect other people. But it did happen, um, and everyone was horrified, and there was a huge international intervention. 
um, as a result of that. So every organization that has any stake in health was hanging out in West Africa during this time period. The World Health, the World Health Organization, MSF, the Stops Without Borders, various militaries were involved. For instance, the British military had a stake in this. And basically any other organization that you can imagine. The description that's often given in the literature in this is that it was an alphabet soup of actors who found themselves involved in the West African Ebola outbreak. But with this large-scale intervention came really large-scale resistance in all three places. So again, I'm kind of tempted to walk up to the map, but I'm not going to so that people who are away can hear me. But in Guinea, so the, the orange picture there, the orange country there, so in Guinea was the most violent and most extreme of the resistance in this case. So there were violent attacks getting reported on almost a weekly basis by the Red Cross, for instance. And in 2014, the most extreme of the violent attacks happened, which was that eight, people, eight members of a medical team were murdered and their bodies were hidden in the latrine to prevent them from gaining access to the community that had really warned them not to get, gain access. So Guinea, really extreme, but in Sierra Leone and Liberia, we also see resistance to the medics, but we see it in a, a more subtle way. So Sierra Leone is typically seen to be very um, conducive to international intervention, mostly as a result of their long-term civil war involvement. Um, but even in Sierra Leone, you saw people hiding their sick relatives when the medical teams would come around, not reporting that a relative had died, secretly burying relatives, um, doing things to the body, like traditional practice things to the body, before the medical teams could be notified. And I don't need to say this to you because you're all medics, but Ebola patients, after they've died, the corpses remain very infectious for three days afterwards. So this was a huge public health crisis that people were intervening in this way. And initially this is seen as kind of being inexplicable. Like, why wouldn't people want medics to intervene? Like, you have an Ebola outbreak, it's so great that there are all these practitioners. I mean, and it seems as though there are these two stories to be told here, one of which is a value-based story. So, for instance, burial. The bodies were a big deal in all three of these locations because traditional burial practice is really important to people. They have very different values from the international people who are intervening. But the other thing, and the reason I'm telling you this kind of horrifying story in which doctors were murdered, was because I think it gets us to think about emotion as well. So in all three of these locations, we see people really fearing the medical practitioners. And so this is a quote that was taken from a sociologist who was working um, on site um, and was taken from Sierra Leone. A woman is running through the streets, crying and screaming, absolutely sobbing, that her baby had been stolen. And what had actually happened was that her grandchild had been taken away to be quarantined because they had Ebola, they had Ebola symptoms. And, but that's the way it was like cashed up, this ordinary member of the public, like running through the streets, sobbing that her baby had been stolen. And so part of what the, the story of the recent West African Ebola outbreak tells us is that fear dis plays a substantial role in distrust. That really emotion is very important to thinking about trust and distrust in medical practitioners. All right, so going back to philosophy a little bit, away from murdered doctors in West Africa, not many philosophers have written very much about emotion and distrust. Karen Jones has given us this really useful quote in which she describes trusting a medical practitioner, or trusting anyone, the experience of trust, as being an optimistic attitude. So I, I like this quote a lot. This way of seeing the other explains the willingness of trusters to let those trusted get dangerously, get dangerously close to the things that we care about the most. Okay, so there's a typo in there, I'm sorry. Um, but the story here, right, is that it's not just informational, it's not even just value-driven trusting and distrusting, but it's also about having the right kind of affective response to the person that you're trusting. It's an optimistic attitude when you trust someone else. And so I go back to this like mental image of me handing over a squidgy baby to a medical practitioner. Like I have an optimistic attitude. I have the right kind of feeling towards the medical practitioner that they're going to treat my baby appropriately. 
And that, that's really different from just the values and just the informational stuff that we're given through informed consent. Very different from thinking about it in terms of that. And then we go to the kind of extreme case, the Ebola case. We see that people really substantially feared the medical practitioners. And it's fear that's doing a lot of work there, and not just values, not just informational stuff. All right. So some of the consequences of trust being emotional. I'm busy. Those, uh, I'm, I'm using two other people's work here. So that's Sarah Ahmed um, in the photograph um, on the, the far side. Um, and she argues that big emotions... Actually, I'm going to start the other way, sorry. Not Martha Nussbaum. Martha Nussbaum, the woman in the pink dress, she is one of the philosophers that if you've never heard of a philosopher, you might have heard because she's kind of a rock star. She's one of these people that's been like profiled in the New Yorker, and you know you've made it in life when you've been profiled in the New Yorker. So Martha Nussbaum's written extensively, she's written extensively on emotions, and she's written a lot about fear recently. So she has um, a recent book that's come out on thinking about what's going on in American politics recently as being driven by fear. And one of the things that she points out is that if fear is doing a lot of work in these contexts, is we should expect, that we should expect to see spillover effects, where people don't just have the emotional reaction to the appropriate target, but they start to have the same negative emotional reaction to other targets around that. So when she's talking about the American case, she thinks about fear um, and terrorism. And so having fear of terrorism in an American context is completely inappropriate response. Like, of course you should be scared of terrorists. Okay, so that's good. Your, your fear should be latching on to fearing the terrorists. But because it's such a big negative emotion, we have the spillover effect where we don't just see fear being targeted at the right target. We also see fear being spilling over into other kinds of targets as well. And so the example that she uses is Islamophobia in the contemporary American situation. So you don't just have fear for terrorists, good target of your fear, but you end up having the spillover in Islamophobia. You end up fearing Muslim people as a category instead of just fearing terrorists. And I'm not saying that terrorists are Muslim, like that's not, that's not the category that I'm trying to show here. It's just that our fear ends up getting misplaced, goes to the wrong targets. And again, going back to the West African case, we definitely see that happening here as well. So I mentioned Guinea, the orange country in the picture. Guinea was a place that had the most extreme, the most violent attacks on medical practitioners and their clinic space, the whole, the whole bam and caboodle, really. And in Guinea, having quite a lot of fear towards authority is kind of appropriate. So the forest region where the most extreme attacks happened is a really politically marginalized group that's being targeted by their government. And so it's right for them to have fear of their government. Their government are not good people. The government is not treating them well. But because it's such a big negative emotion, this fear, it ends up spilling over and finding itself in inappropriate places, like fearing the medical team that intervenes in the Ebola situation. So given that like, distrust and fear are so closely related, we should expect to see these kind of spillover effects. And we do. The other thing, and I think the second thing is more relevant, really, um, to thinking about medical practice, like your day-to-day -day medical practice, is that emotion has this quality of being kind of sticky. Now, I don't mean sticky like if you've spilled your honey on the surface. I mean that it's difficult to undo once it's there. So negative emotions, once they're in place, difficult to undo. And so it means that it's difficult to win back trust once it's lost. So one, given that trust seems to have this emotional component, and that we know that negative emotions seem to be really sticky, I mean, think about like that ex-boyfriend you haven't seen in 20 years, um, and you still kind of like get the ugh, yuck feeling about them. It's difficult to undo that, even though he now seems to be a super nice guy, and like maybe he's a medical doctor and has loads of good children. Like it's difficult to get rid of that negative affective association once that's been set up. And that's Sarah Ahmed's work, the, the woman on the far side there. We should expect this to be sticky. And the stickiness, I think, helps us understand quite a lot of what's going on in medical contexts. 
So think about the ways in which we try to build trust with our patients sometimes. You know, the, the emphasis on informed consent, for, for, for instance, can give people loads of textual information. Like, here's a flyer on the HPV vaccine. Um, here's a flyer on this. Let me explain it to you. Let me give you lots of information. It looks as though information is not going to help us undo distrust if it has this emotional sticky quality. Even like doing the, the, the joint decision-making, uh, really sensitive values work might not help to undo distrust given this sticky quality that's involved. And I don't have any good ideas for how you're supposed to undo that sticky quality, just that you should maybe be aware that it's there. So once distrust has been established, and this might not have anything to do with you as an individual medical practitioner, like you might not be the, like, the reason that this person fears medical practitioners in general or has this like, sticky negative attitude towards medical practitioners. And so it might be that there's very little that you can do, but it might be helpful to be aware that it's there, right? And so knowing that giving as many flyers as you want or as many informed consent talks as you want or as much like value discussion as you want still might not be able to get you there for trust, given the stickiness. And very often, the people and communities we see that are most distrustful of medical practitioners are people whose communities have had really long histories of being treated poorly by the medical establishment. And so, for instance, if you look at data that comes out of the United States, African Americans are really distrustful of medical practitioners and the things that are like, prescribed to them. And part of the reason of that is the kind of long history of racist medicine that was practiced in the United States. Like, all you need to do is mention the word Tuskegee. Um, and providing people with information, engaging with their values, it doesn't seem as though it's going to be able to undo that distrust given the fear that's like, underpinning it. All right, so here are the academic conclusions before I do some like advertising of various values-based events at the end. One of the conclusions that I want to say, which is unsatisfying, is that it's not going to be any rule book on like, how to do this. So I can't give you a textbook on how to build trust with the public in general and your patients in particular. There's not going to be any, there's no like set things of things you can do that you can check, you know, you can kind of a checklist and check your way down it and then trust will have been achieved. Rather, all that I can tell you is that in addition to paying attention to the things that most medical practitioners already are, the informational stuff, in which you like, demonstrate that you're competent, think about Philip Pettit right at the beginning with the bus driver, in addition to paying attention to these kind of demonstrations of competency, you also need to pay attention to the value clashes. Again, think about Maya Goldenberg and the value clashes that are going on in vaccine hesitancy, but also pay attention to the emotions that are going on. Patients, when you see them, are typically in very high emotional states, like, I always joke that I never came a doctor because no one comes to see you because they're having a good day, right? <laughs> People come to see you in the worst moments of their lives. And so these are really high emotion. Pay attention to that. And importantly, the third thing on that, the slide is that this is probably going to be something that's going to take skill and practice. You're going to get better at this during the course of your career. I mean, think about the distinction between, I don't know who's in this room really, I don't know what your backgrounds are, but the distinction about like your first week as a junior doctor um, and like how maybe not good you were at managing these things versus like towards the end of your career when you've gained a lot more experience and you know how to deal with patients. And so this is like taking into account all of these things. I can't give you a textbook. I can't tell you what to do. I can't give you a checkbox. But it's something that you're likely to become more skilled and more practiced at, providing that you're paying attention to these things. Okay, so I have three more minutes. Here in the... We can take a little bit more time if you like. Oh, no, 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 it's fine. I mean, right. we, can, we should also have time for discussion. Yeah, great. So here ends the academic portion. I'm not going to talk to you any more about trust, values, or emotions. Instead, I'm just going to gesture towards some things that you might be interested in. So I know that pretty much everyone in this room is probably aware of mind reading. It's run by Liz Barrett. Um, I think that the reason I'm here is probably because Liz recommended me. Um, and so mind reading is going to be happening in Dublin this year on the 3rd of April at the Royal College of Physicians. 
and that's a great project that brings together people from the humanities and people from medicine and increasing philosophers. Um, so initially it started out as a literature medical collaboration um, to think about what tools literature and literary theory could like bring to medical practice. Um, but it's widened the scope a bit, and I think that I've been invited for the last two years as a philosopher to think about some of the things that I've spoken about today, thinking about things like trust. And I think that this year's mind reading is about vaccine hesitancy, is, in fact, and so some of the things we've spoken about today will be relevant for that. But that's going to be right local in your back garden, and Des mentioned right at the beginning that I'm moving to Liverpool, we're going to be hosting it in Liverpool next year, so if you'd like a short trip over the Irish Sea, um, good fun will be had. The other thing I want to flag towards you um, it's something that I've been involved with, I co-lead it, um, it's called INVITE, it's Integrating Values into Evidence-Based Medicine. The, the acronym, the, the, like, the name doesn't quite match the, the things that we do there, but we're really interested in thinking about how values get incorporated into medical practice, and increasingly also how values get incorporated into the policy sphere, into health policy in particular. Um, and that's a collaboration between philosophers and medical practitioners of various sorts to think really hard about values and how to do this work. So part of the reason I said on the previous slide that I can't give you a textbook or a rule book on how to do this is because no one really knows how to do this stuff well. Like, part of what's exciting about being in venues like this is we're right at the beginning of thinking about these things. And lots of clever people are thinking about them, but it does mean that we don't have good answers for how you're supposed to do this yet. And so if we compare this to kind of traditional bioethics and concerns about things like informed consent and joint decision making, like, people have been thinking about this since, like, at least World War II. There's a long history of thinking about those things. We were really like right at the beginning of thinking about how to do values work well in the medical practice. And so it would be delightful to hear from some of you um, and to get and to be involved in that because I think everyone who's involved is really keen on how to try to figure out how to do this work better. The final thing that I want to remind you of is the MA in Health and Society. I've given you a very brief taster of some of the things that we talk about and discuss in that program. Um, I often like to joke, and I probably shouldn't be saying this because I think I'm being recorded, that we're basically the thinking person's public health degree. Um, and so it would be great to have some of you there. We're doing a lot of work to try and make it the part-time option really feasible to have in order to attract more professionals onto that module. And that's all I've got to say. Thank you. Oh, and I've come in six seconds to spare. Thanks very much. That's, uh... The hub is a community. Minister of Book and Print Cultures, stamping provenance towards the history of the Taimoria Library, as well as being heard. The hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Coral The hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.